0: Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24 This week, we we'll look at the U.S. midterm results.
1: Young people are notoriously hard to poll pre-elections, but they showed up in, in large numbers and they voted overwhelmingly for Democrats. Plus,
0: a report from COP27.
2: We're exploiting our forest to save the forest, exploiting it sustainably to save the forest.
0: All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a U.S. midterms analysis. The panelists of our show, Monaco Daily, Terrence Diasny and Lou Lukens, tell us what stand out from the results.
1: I think it was a good night for Democrats. Even if they lose control of the House, they, they will lose control by much less than they had, than everyone had anticipated. This was a referendum on Joe Biden, but also on Donald Trump. And I think that sort of evened the odds a little bit for Democrats. Um, I think it clearly young people came out to vote in much higher numbers than people had anticipated they would. And I think that's a lesson for pollsters. Young people are notoriously hard to poll pre-elections, but they showed up in, in large numbers and they voted overwhelmingly for Democrats. And abortion as an issue is interesting because over the summer, people thought this is going to be the big issue over the last couple of weeks. Most of the polling indicated that abortion was sort of down around number five after crime, immigration, inflation in the economy. However, exit polling yesterday indicated that actually abortion was the top issue for – was the second most important issue for voters after the economy. So clearly it it was an important issue for voters and for voters for whom that was an important issue – Most of them voted for Democrats. Well, on that
3: subject, let's have a listen to some of what Pennsylvania's new senator, John Fetterman, had to
1: say. I'm proud of what we ran on. Protecting a woman's right to choose. Raising our minimum wage. Fighting the union way of life. Health care is a fundamental human right. It saved my life and it should all be there for you when you ever should need it. Standing up to corporate greed. Making more things right here in America and right here in Pennsylvania. And standing up for our democracy.
3: Pennsylvania's Lieutenant Governor now Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman celebrating his victory earlier. Um, Terry, obviously, uh, John Fetterman has a fairly partisan view uh, of what kind of issues might have moved Americans to vote uh, Democrat in these elections. But do you think it's basically accurate that that was those were the kind of things that got people to the polls, especially those young people who, as Lou was pointing out, pollsters often miss?
4: Yes, I think that's probably the case. I mean, without seeing all of the detailed figures so far, I was struck by someone else who's obviously got a completely partisan view of all this, which is Hillary Clinton, who said, well, look, it turns out women like to have rights and women turned out to vote on those issues. And so, you know, if you're looking at young people and it might well have driven an increase in in turnout among women and also not only in the more general, you know, state uh, senator, governor's elections, but on state level, there were quite a few propositions specifically on abortion rights, which wrote the rights to abortion into state law mm. in places like California and even in places like Kentucky where the laws are otherwise very sort of strictly anti-abortion it's now uh, there's you know a, a, an, a, a vote which has allowed, that to be questioned and will allow people to push for slightly more rights than the state might otherwise have let them. So, you know, on the individual local state level, that has, that has played a, a big role as well.
3: Um, Lou, it was as we have been discussing, very very far from the red wave that the Republican Party had been hoping for, but there is no doubt that there was one Republican for whom this was a monumental win uh, yesterday, and this was the Governor of Florida, uh, Ron DeSantis. We can hear some of what he had to say. As well.
1: We have embraced freedom. We have maintained law and order. We have protected the rights of parents.
5: We have respected our taxpayers and we reject woke ideology. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke
1: mob. Florida is where woke goes to die.
3: Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida summoning the woke bogeyman in his victory speech. Um, Lou, however, he won by a street uh, in what was once regarded as a swing state. Um, as of that result, bookmakers now have him favorite, uh, as opposed to someone else who we shall get to shortly to be the Republican nominee for president in 2024. Does that seem
1: fair to you? It does. I, I think I think that's absolutely correct. I think he has shown um, he's been a successful governor and he has um, turned that into incredible turnout and votes for him and for his party in Florida. Let's not forget that the person he ran against was the, is the former Republican governor mm. of of, of uh, Florida. So, you know, not exactly a super left-wing, woke type, as he says. Um, and and he ran a strong campaign. He has unlimited funds, basically, at his disposal. Two billionaires have each pledged $1 billion to him if he runs for president. Um, and he's also raised over $100 million himself. So uh, American politics are expensive, and he's got the money to do it.
3: Well, the former president, Donald Trump, may have become a slightly more former president in the last 24 hours. But let's hear from him as well. Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. And if they lose, I should not be blamed at all. Okay, but it'll probably be just the opposite. Uh, When they win, I think they're going to do very well. I'll probably be given very little credit, even though in many cases I told people to run. Terry, regular listeners will be aware that I am profoundly loath to credit uh, former President Donald Trump with anything at all. Sometimes I do wonder if there is somewhere in there a sense of humour.
4: It was very strange. I was listening to bits of him speaking at one of the uh, one of his rallies and he's been to spend most of his time talking about the buckets of rain and the teleprompter and he just sort of going off on sort of strange tangents. Um, I think it's, it's really interesting though that we're talking about Ron DeSantis. One of the things that he chose to point out was like we chose law and order over rioting and disorder. And so he is trying to, you know, make that distinction between himself and Trump as as obvious as he can. And I think, you know, it is quite interesting that a lot of the candidates uh, that Trump had supported, okay, some of them uh, did quite well, some people like J.D. Vance and stuff, but some, Interestingly, some of the people who had said when they were running that they didn't accept the last set of election results and who quite possibly wouldn't accept the next set of election results, you know, had they lost. They didn't win. Now, whether they're going to try and question that and claim something different, uh, I don't know. But it will hopefully make the next set of elections more secure with fewer people trying to question the outcomes.
0: And this year's UN COP27 climate summit in El Sheik has seen developing countries, many of them in Africa, push for the developed world to pay compensation for the climate change they are disproportionately responsible for, a process known as loss and damages. Africa is also home to some of the most fragile and important ecosystems in the world, which are threatened by climate change and resource exploitation. Carlota Ribelo has been at COP27 for us and caught up with Lee White, Minister of Water, Forests, the Sea and Environment in Gabon. She asked him how Gabon is protecting its forest.
2: The Congo Basin is, is the heart and lungs of the African continent. And so as Gabon thinks about, we think about our development strategy. A country, where a country that's 88% covered in forests, We we are aware of the fact that if we develop by cutting the forest down then we're shooting ourselves in the foot because we're condemning the Sahel and we're condemning tens or hundreds of millions of Africans to become climate refugees. So we have to find a way to develop our country to create jobs for our people whilst also keeping the forest standing. So The model we've come up with was to ban the export of logs, unprocessed logs. Uh, for over a century, we exported logs, and when we did that, we were only recovering 5 to 10 percent of the potential value of the timber that we were exporting. So, when President Ali Bongo banned the export of logs and, and, and made timber transformation obligatory in country, we started to increase revenues from our timber. So, in 10 years, we've multiplied our forest um, economy by a factor of four. And we've three times more jobs in the forest sector because we're transforming the timber and that creates jobs and value added. Uh, and we can still go further. We think we can still add another zero. We can, we can multiply by 10 the economy and the number of jobs. And our vision is that that increases the value of the forest. As a rule, people manage things that are valuable and things that are not valuable get treated badly. And so we think that in the long term, if, if, if forests are going to be viable in Gabon, they have to be thought of as a precious commodity by the Gabonese people. And if we have hundreds of thousands of people whose jobs rely on sustainable forest management, if we, we can increase the contribution of, of forestry to the economy, uh, such that the ministers of economy and and, and and budget think of the forest sector as a precious sector, then we can we have a much better hope of of preserving the forest. So we're we're exploiting our forest to save the forest, exploiting it sustainably to save the forest.
4: Loss and damage payments has been talked about a lot in these first few days already. So one can expect over the next couple of days for that to continue. What's your assessment of where? nations are standing on that? Do you think it will be possible to find an agreement by the end of COP27? Or are these more wealthier nations trying to move the conversation elsewhere, I
2: guess? Just the way these negotiations work, where we're trying to find consensus across almost 200 countries, um, it takes time. And so when you look at the schedule of the negotiations, we're not planning to conclude the work on loss and damage here in Egypt. There's meant to be a conclusion next, next year in Dubai. So, so we won't conclude the work on loss and damage here, here in Egypt. What we will have by the time we get to the end of the negotiation here at COP27 is we'll have an idea of what progress we are making. And I think there's a, it sounds like there's a very severe threat that we won't make much progress and so what I'm hearing from the negotiators is if there's going to be a clash here between developed and developing nations it's going to be on loss and damage because our impression is the small gains we made in Glasgow because we didn't get everything we wanted but we did for the very first time ever get loss and damage onto the official agenda of of the COP so that, that was an achievement. But the the small progress that we made, the impression is that developed nations are perhaps reticent to advance. And so it, it may well end up that the way we judge COP27 is how we advanced on that particular issue. I think it's going to become the litmus test over the next 10 days of was COP27 a success or not. And so I'm watching very carefully and I'm... I'm uh, readying myself like a like a heavyweight boxer. I'm getting ready for the fight.
0: You are listening to the curator of Monaco Twenty Four, and something that I had plenty of fun doing this week. It's the beginning of the Global Countdown World Cup. Do you want to find out more? Tune in now.
6: Tell us what we're going to be doing with Global Countdown. I am immensely excited about this.
0: This is very exciting. It is indeed the World Cup of Music, Emma. And, and, you know, today we're looking at the groups A and B from the World Cup. And here is how it's going to work. Uh, I'm looking at the number one songs in the countries in those groups, which I'll tell you in a bit. And there are a few rules here as well in place. It can only be a local artist. And if you ask me, what about if the number one song is not from the country? Well, I go for number two, number three, until I find a local artist so you know the rules are there and at the end of the segment I'll choose one winning song for each group and they will be uh, at the semi-finals which will be I believe in three to four weeks
6: you've clearly gone to work with a shovel here exactly
0: (laughs) there's very strict rules uh, and, of course, it's not just me following my heart. I mean, I look at the relevance and the quality of the song as well. I hope you agree with my choices, Emma. But, you know, it could be controversial. <laughs> you su- never know.
6: I suspect, Faye, I have very little choice in the matter. <laughs> but So the idea is these are not the football songs.
0: Sometimes they could be if they are number right, one. Okay. We, might, we might see this a little bit, actually.
6: A little bit. But these are the songs which are currently number one. Yes. Okay. And Always current. So we're not expecting them to last until the end of the, the, end of the World Cup. So this actually is a... Sh- uh, an ever-shifting game that we're playing Exactly. Here.
0: So you might go through the playoff, but then if your number one in a few weeks is terrible, goodbye.
6: You choose your different team members, don't you? Exactly. Who's playing up front, who's behind. Right. So first and foremost, this is complicated Yes. Stuff. So we're going to have to keep it simple. So today we have... This is going. This is a long session we're in <laughs> yes, for. Okay, we we'll,
0: we'll try to be snappy. We'll
6: try and be snappy, but I suspect this may go on for quite. I hope anyone listening doesn't have anything to do for the next half hour. Uh, <laughs> sit down, have a listen. So, Group A, we have Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, and Netherlands. Yes, fine. And then once we've gone through them, we go through Group B, who are England, Iran, USA, and Wales. That's a lively collection. And then you will tell us who you believe you want to go through. From group A and then from group B. Yes. Right, here we go.
0: Easy peasy. Off Uh, we go, you start. We start in Qatar which is uh, the host country as well. Mm. And the number one song, I mean, funnily enough, it's one of the official tracks of the World Cup. And I have to say, the Qatari music industry, I mean, I think they're still beginning. There are not many Qatari music artists out there. Well, but <laughs> one of their local artists is indeed a number one, uh, singing with others, including Davido in Trinidad and Cardona. But Aisha, she is the one. And this is the song called Higher, Higher, which means something like, let's go. Uh, let's have a listen to to this track.
4: Yeah, you can...
6: So that immediately, it it sort of takes you straight to a stadium where you're queuing for your overpriced litre of pop
0: very much and so and you're,
6: you're ready to go and say that and it's and it's resounding around the stadium while while stuff's happening
0: that's the vibe uh, she's going for she was picked up because she was a social media star singing a cover of songs as well of different attractions uh, beautiful voice that's all i can say about aisha there with qatar
6: it's lovely and the video is quite nice all bobbing around in the desert it's good fun um qatar does reggae i mean how be- i'm not expecting you to know the answer to this uh but Qatar's reggae scene.
0: Uh, it's not that big, right? I have to say. So <laughs> they, they have to hire usually artists from Nigeria on other places. But, you know, they do have Aisha. At least she's number
6: one. They haven't with this one, though. Yes. This is local. That's, local. that's a local gem. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Qatar ranking fairly highly in my book, but I know that my voice does not matter here. Let's move to Ecuador.
0: Ecuador is, was a very difficult one, uh, Emma, because... <laughs> You know, I looked at their charts. They're very rare to see an Ecuadorian artist there. You know, it's dominated by artists from Puerto Rico, Colombia. But they do have, uh, you know, a local artist here with... And again, it's another official World Cup song. So it's not my intention here to only do football tracks, but you know, they are happening. I have to respect what the charts are saying. Uh, This song is by Naiza and Jose Victoria. The song is called Ecuador Grita Gol. Ecuador shouts Gol. Let's have a listen.
6: Okay, that's actually better when you listen to it than when you watch the video, which, dare I say, looks a little bit like it's done as a sort of... uh, Yes. (laughs) I was going to say 14-year-old's graphic design project. (laughs) Sorry. cheap sums it up much more pithily. Um, So Spotify says that Niza is a multi-talented Ecuadorian artist who has quickly built a forceful path in the Latin music industry with hard work from an early stage. She sounds like a bit of a grafter but my kind of gal.
0: Exactly. Uh, We're going to a country with a a, I wouldn't say a richer music scene but you know I like music from Senegal uh, usually. Uh, And the number one of course comes from the queen of Senegalese music. Who
6: is the queen of Senegalese music?
0: (laughs) Well let's have a listen is Vivian she did with yok yok
5: sit on the yo ko ko ma te
6: Then a better listen than watch because the video is wildly distracting. If you've got 10 (laughs) minutes that you really don't mind losing out of your life, I do recommend that you go and watch this lady's video. It's bonkers.
0: It's bonkers. And it is a love song as well. I was reading lyrics, of course. Very, very beautiful. She has a Lebanese father and a Mauritanian mother. So, you know, it's a a good sign of the multiculturalism of Senegal as well. And
6: the video itself is of a wedding day, a happy event. She gets the guy, she gets the dress. There's a woman playing the violin in her bedroom when she wakes up, but we're not going to worry about that. She's the queen. She's the queen. She's it. She's absolutely the cat's pyjamas, having a lovely, lovely time. Unlike the Poor Souls in the Netherlands video.
0: And again, the video... Which is where we're going next. Exactly. The video for this track doesn't really match the song because the video, you know, there's a crime scene happening. It's all very mysterious. But the track itself is a lovely electropop, you know, bop, you know, from uh, a band called Gold Band. Uh, And this this song is called Nud which I think means something like emergency. You've practiced that, haven't you? Oh, yes.
6: And and (laughs) 10 out of 10, winner. (laughs) Let's have a listen.
4: Een noodgeval
6: That's super stuff. Oh, you've gone all funny. Yes,
0: it's good. <laughs>
6: it is good, isn't it? And we sound with an element of surprise. Again, this is a thing. Don't watch the video, just listen to the music. There is a whole different item to be made about how we are perhaps getting the resurgent of the interesting yet irrelevant narrative video that we, I think we all saw in the 1980s. Exactly. Or well, some of us saw it for a million years old. But th- this this is good. That sounds like a proper piece of music for proper radio and I'm having a bit of a proper dance.
0: Yes. And Emma, are you ready to grow? because it's it's a hard group you know how, how do you call it uh, the football experts the you know the deaf group I believe that's how we call it in Portuguese when you know there's very good players in there uh, all I can say that group B is much stronger group than group A
6: Are we group of deaf here in terms of music or players or music. both? Music music, Okay because I was about to say we've got England, Iran USA and Wales now I know that our pres- producer Reese will be <laughs> will be clearly very proud of his nation so we will be bearing that in mind when we're talking about the next bit because we don't want to offend anyone. Um, Okay, let's begin with England. Sam Smith, big hitter, hugely important figure in, in, in British music, number one, with a very complicated and rather... There is a nasty piece of music, but quite interesting.
0: Yes, uh, I would describe. I wrote, uh, wrote I scribbled here. S and dark electro beats. It's a massive hit, unholy in the United States, in England, and in many other countries. So well done, Sand Smith. I, I quite enjoy. It's a powerful track. Who, and
6: who doesn't love a bit of S and electro beat on the radio?
0: I still haven't found someone like this, but uh, shall we have a listen to? A, try Soho on a Friday evening. Exactly. <laughs> Let's have a listen, Sand Smith. Unholy. she's dropping it.
7: she be it. she put it down we He his kids home.
5: We So he can get
7: that. That's
6: such a good piece of music. Great start, right? For all right? the wrong reasons. It's brilliant. It's such a good song. So, right, we've got that starting England with, with Group B. Um, gosh, we're a long way away from Senegal and, and and Ecuador from Group A, aren't we? We've just upped the game massively. Apologies to Group A. Um, we now have a handbrake turn <laughs> because we leave the S&M Electropop of Sand Smith for Iran.
0: Iran, and that's... A very emotional track. I have to say, Emma, this song by a singer called Chervan, uh, it was the anthem song for uh, for the Mass Amissi uh, protest as well uh, in Iran. And in fact, uh, two days after the song was released, Chervan was arrested and he was released on bail. It's a beautiful track. It's called Barei and it's for... Women. It's for a life of freedom for women. So he's a very brave uh, man to release a song, and the song has been an instant hit all over social media in Iran.
6: And it's been picked up even by the likes of Coldplay. Played yes, it it's, it's live a few weeks ago. This is a powerful piece of music.
0: If I may say, I even actually shed a few tears. Let's have a listen to this track. <laughs>
6: Goosebump moment.
0: I'm, we're both here, yeah. feeling goosebumps. And look at the lyrics, Emma, for my sister, your sister, our sister. Oh my God, I'm hmm. getting emotional here, live on radio. I like Group B. I like Group it B. Takes as well. us everywhere. Uh, USA next USA and and all I have to say about this about Taylor Swift I mean she is incredible she is powerful she commands she's a machine she's a machine I mean she's in the
6: nicest possible way no offense to Miss Swift
0: absolutely she basically she's the only person that managed to have the whole top 10 in the US with tracks from her new album that's incredible she's still people want to still buy her albums and CDs she has a very devoted fan base and I like her music. Mm. Let us have a listen to
6: entirely in control of her own destiny.
0: I love that. Marvelous.
6: I do too. Right. Okay, Ta- Miss Swift, what are we hearing from you.
0: Anti-hero. It's me.
5: Hi. I'm the problem, it's me. At tea, time, everybody agrees. I'll stand
0: directly at the sun, but never in the memory. Must be
6: exhausting always. Rooting. Do we like this? I do. Okay, I why do. do we like this? Sankey? I think
0: the production is amazing. There's some very discreet synths in the background. I think she's a great songwriter as well. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not like a Swifty. I think that's how they call the Taylor the Swift fans, right? But I Everyone's
6: resp- a Swifty somewhere.
0: Everyone is a Swifty. Perhaps even I am uh, secretly. Um, but... Emma, I think we should end with Wales. I mean, that's an interesting one as well. Right.
6: But again, mentioning the fact that our producer, Reese, very keen for this to do well.
0: I'm scared about how to pronounce <laughs> the okay. names, but he did, he did tell me how to do it, but probably. I'll, he's I'll say,
6: looking, he's watching through the glass. Oh Here I'll, we go. I'll
0: hide myself. But, okay. But before I play this track, I have to say, this song was written in 1983, and it's a song basically you know, about the survival of the Welsh language. So it's a very proud song.
6: Let's try uh, not to massacre the Welsh language and reintroduce <laughs> it oh then.
0: God. I'm sorry for all, all our Welsh listeners. And by the way, one more thing. This is the official track for their own World Cup team as well. Last time Wales was in the World Cup was back in 1958. So clearly it's a big deal for them it is. to be here. And okay. it's a beautiful, powerful track by uh, David Ewan with Ima O'Hid. I'm still here.
6: Thumbs up from (laughs) Reese. I think the word we could describe that is rousing. And I'm just going to explain Omar O'Heev. Yes,
0: it's powerful. Am I might even download this track later on.
6: Yeah, we're going to have a sing-song.
0: Exactly. Um,
6: it's it's wonderful. Right, so we mm. have uh, group A and group B. So let's just quickly recap. We're now coming to the, the, the interesting bit. Um, group A and group B who you believe should go through to the next round. Just explain to us the rules, The rules as you can just one more time.
0: Yeah, it's not just, I'm going to choose one track from each group to go mm-hmm. ahead to the semifinals. And again, it's not just my personal taste. It's about relevance. It's about the quality of the music. There will be controversies. There'll be disagreements. But you know, this is just a little bit of fun as well.
6: I know, I love a controversial <laughs> bit of fun. So Group A, just to recap, Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, Netherlands. I think I know which way you're going from the one that you danced the most to in the studio. This is where, ladies and gentlemen, I have the advantage because I can see what what phase. Should I just tell is. the winner? Go on.
0: The winner is the Netherlands. Okay. They are classified to the semifinals. Oh,
6: do, is it possible to play just that a tiny little bit more? Is that going to confuse? Of the Netherlands, you? A I bit think more so. Of the Netherlands. Can we go back? Why did you choose the Netherlands?
0: Well, because it's a great electropop beat, you know, and it's good to see that they local band as well, number one, and their former plasterers as well. So they changed their careers and they changed it very well. Oh so I do well love done. a
6: former plasterer. Right. I think we do believe we have their music. Let's have a listen. It is winner for group A? Yes. And, and a worthy one, I think. You, you're, you're happy with that one?
0: Will be added to the M24 playlist. That's an exclusive news. I
6: can Excellent. I can't wait to introduce that. Um, okay. Whew. In that context, actually. So right, group B, we had England, Iran, USA and Wales.
0: Emma, that was a difficult one. I've changed my mind, actually, uh, during you know the research. But I think... You know we need to care about the relevance of tracks and, you know, the power the power they have. And with that, it can only be Iran the winner of Group B. Okay. And I believe we might play even a little bit of this wonderful track by Shervin Barai. <laughs>
6: Another worthy winner, I think you think. Ooh,
0: good, very good. Actually, the start of the Global Countdown World Cup.
6: We have launched it in an incredibly powerful way. Thank yes. you so much for that, Thanks Fernando. To you. And now, this time next week, what do you do with us? Is it Group C and D? Absolutely. How many groups are they?
0: There are. Well, I believe there are eight.
6: A gift that we'll keep on giving. <laughs> yes. If you're a fan of the briefing on a Thursday, you've got a lot more of this to come.
2: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries.
3: Over 900 of the sharpest minds and
2: freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
8: To find out how we could help
2: you, contact us at ubs.com. You are
0: listening to The Curator. And now a highlight from our special historical episode of The Foreign Desk. This week the show is all about the Easter Rising in Ireland. It's a genius idea for a show, and here it is, an excerpt of that episode.
3: Brianna, let's start with the basics. Where are you right now, and what can you tell us about what's going on?
8: Yes, well, it's been quite an incredible number of days here in Dublin, among the most, I suppose, chaotic and just unbelievable scenes here. Currently, I'm standing around the corner from Moor Street, which is a little street to the north and to the side of the GPO or the General Post Office in Sackford Street here in Dublin. And it's there that the rebel leaders have now ensconced themselves really in a small little terrace of houses. Currently, they're in number 16, but I believe that they have also borrowed through a number of houses. So they have run of this entire terrace. They would have abandoned the GPO last evening after dark, the GPO has been under siege, basically, has been hit by artillery, incendiary bombs, machine gun fire, sniper fire over the last number of days. And last evening, things became intolerable, I think, for the weapons. The roof had caved in. So they then made their way under heavy British army fire from the snipers across Henry Street, which is the street parallel to the GPO, and made their way into this little warren of terrorist houses. And to be honest, things are looking not very good for them. Civilian bodies are littering the streets. They're right outside uh, 16 now, looking at three bodies of one rather elderly man, I think, with white flags or white handkerchief things or homemade white flags lying beside them. It's quite a terrible, terrible scene.
3: You've been at the heart of these extraordinary events in and around the GPO since Monday. If you think back to the beginning of this apparent rebellion, what was your sense of how well-organised, well-armed, well-provisioned the rebels are? Because I'm guessing that whatever their plan was, what you've just described was not it.
8: Well, indeed. And just thinking back to the weekend, on Sunday, for example, rumours were filtering through that a German ship had been seized off the coast of Kerry and uh, Sir Roger Casement, a very, very well-known ex-diplomat and civil rights person, human rights, but also a strong Republican and rebel in his sympathies, was captured. And the ship carrying, I think, something like 20,000 rifles, it's rumoured, was scuttled. So I think the authorities, certainly in Dublin Castle, from my discussions with my sources there, didn't expect anything to happen. They felt because these arms were undoubtedly going to the rebels and that their source of arms was gone at the bottom of the Irish Sea. And also, a very interesting thing occurred in, in the Sunday newspapers. There was a countermanding order from one of the leaders of the Irish Volunteers, Owen McNeil, to say that all manoeuvres that were to be held on that Sunday were cancelled. So then on Monday, I think people kind of had given sides, those that were in, slightly in the know, certainly the authorities at Dublin Castle, really, I suppose, were becalmed in a sense and were happy that things that might have occurred would not occur. So basically, Dublin went about their Easter Monday, bank holiday. Crowds went to Ferry House to the races. Many British officers went off to the races. It was a particularly beautiful, sunny day here in Dublin. And people were walking the streets. It was very normal. And then around midday, a group of people left the trade union, a building called Liberty Hall, which is down in the city centre of Dublin, on the quays, right beside the River Liffey. And some 200 rebels, dressed in uniform, marched up Sackville Street. And people thought it was just a march because they'd done that before. So they wheeled about and went in with their rifles and bayonets and took over the general post office.
3: Now, the reports we're seeing, and indeed you've suggested it yourself, suggest that the response from the British authorities in Dublin has been fairly punishing. Do you get the sense that the rebels in the GPO did not anticipate quite that scale of response from the British? I mean, we've heard of the deployment of artillery in the streets of Dublin, of Royal Navy ships, His Majesty's yachts, Helga and Seahawks shelling Liberty Hall and Sackville Street from the Liffey. Has that come as a surprise to the rebel leadership?
8: I think it has, to be honest. I mean, I think the first two days perhaps lulled them into the sense of, for security, that they were doing well, they were holding these buildings, and allowing the British to come. And I think, in particular, James Connolly—I as I remember he wrote an article where he believed that authorities, certainly the British, would not bomb civilian city centre mainly not because of the civilians, but because the capitalists would not like to lose their money. He was talking about the German bombing of towns in Belgium, for example. He he believed that would not happen, and he was totally wrong, because by the time the British realised, by about, I suppose, Tuesday, they brought in the army battalions from the Curran, based about 30 miles outside Dublin. They came by train to the main station, but they were followed very quickly on Wednesday morning by quite a number of troops who arrived in ships from Liverpool in army ships. They were bound for France, and they were diverted to Dublin, as far as I'm aware. And it's estimated, as I was talking to somebody from Dublin Castle, and they estimated that some 16,000 troops are now in Dublin. So I don't think the rebels imagined that, and I certainly don't think, that when they took these principal buildings, and all of these are under constant barrage by the British forces, General Lowe's strategy really was to tighten the noose on all of these rebel strongholds and absolutely destroyed Liberty Hall, left it at just a shell. And of course Trinity College, there were machine guns positioned there, artillery, which was again aimed at Sackville Street and the General Post Office. So I think the rebels would have been quite surprised at the ferocity of the response and the fact that really Dublin city centre now resembles Ypres or one of those devastated cities in Europe.
3: What sense were you able to get of what discussions were going on among the rebel leadership as conditions have deteriorated in the GPO over the last few days?
8: Well, that was interesting. Apparently, according to my sources, James Connolly, who was one of the rebel leaders, he had been injured. He was on a reconnaissance outside the GPO, across to another one of their small garrisons. And he was injured and was brought back into the GPO. I have no information on his condition, but apparently he was shot in the leg. He made an address to the garrison on Friday, where he said, lads, we are winning. Patently, absurd. But then I think Patrick Pearce, again, the rebel leader who styled himself the commander-in-chief of the Irish Republican Army and the president of the provisional government, who was very much the official leader of the rebels, he issued a very interesting statement at 9.30 yesterday morning, which is, I think, more realistic in light of the situation than Connolly's But he does say, he explains in that, and it's very, very interesting, I think, to see what motivated these men, knowing most likely, as they did, that they could not win militarily, given the countermanding order, given the fact that they didn't have the arms that they were expecting from Germany, given the fact that half of them that were meant to uh, mobilise on Easter Sunday did not mobilise on Easter Monday, when when it eventually went ahead. So here he says that, basically, they will win, but they might have to win in death. And that's what they have done, is they have expunged the shame of Dublin, it's very much almost like an act of Marxism, if you like. And he also says in that and in conversations with some of the men there that he expects that he and perhaps some of the other leaders will lose their lives, but that the men should be obviously sent to prisoner of war camps and treated as prisoners of war. And that this then would allow Ireland to take its place at whatever international meeting happened after the ending of the war.
0: And as every week here on The Curator, we have a nice recipe for you. This one is a recipe for mini dumplings from the author of a new cookbook pierogi.
9: So these are the nutty mini dumplings from my cookbook pierogi. They are called krokiety in Polish, but krokiety can mean lots of different things. Um, they can be stuffed with meat. Um, they can have all kinds of things inside. And um, they are made using all kinds of different doughs as well. So a krokiet can be lots and lots of different things. But this is one I found and an old cookbook, uh, so I did have to change it a little bit because those old recipes tend to be just kind of ideas of recipes and then you have to kind of experiment and find the kind of diamond within the recipe and this is a really good one, it goes with anything really uh, you can even use it you know, as part of tapas or you can eat it with any kind of sauce I would even have it as a beer snack or you could even have it on the side of a roast dinner or something like that So the way you make these croquettes is with uh, floury potatoes. And I'm gonna give the amounts for quite a big number of these croquettes because I think once you're making them, you might as well make a lot and you can just warm them up in the oven the next day. So we need 600 grams of floury potatoes and they need to be boiled and peeled and mashed. Uh, While they're cooling down, because you want them at kind of around room temperature, they can be a little bit warmer. You want to chop 200 grams of walnuts Uh, two tablespoons of uh, flat-leaf parsley and lightly beat two eggs. Then, once the potatoes are the right temperature and you can handle them, you add them in, the walnuts, the parsley, the eggs and also three tablespoons of flour. And you form a dough with your hands out of this. So you combine them really well with your hands into a dough. If it's still a bit sticky, add a little bit more flour. Then, prepare a surface with breadcrumbs on it. I usually use a really big plate. With wet hands, form about 60 bite-sized balls, a little bit smaller than a walnut because you want to be able to pop them in your mouth in one go, and roll them around in the breadcrumbs. In the meantime, you want to heat some oil in a large frying pan, and once you've got, you know, six or seven of them, you can start frying them while you're making the rest so you want them basically golden brown on all sides so make sure you move them around a little bit and then you drain them on paper towels and you can just uh, sprinkle some more flat leaf parsley on top and uh, serve them however you like as i previously mentioned they're really versatile
0: you are listening to The Curator. For Monaco, on Design this week, we meet Pritzker Architecture Prize winner Francis Kere to discuss his sustainable and local approach to design.
10: I was trained as a carpenter in Burkina Faso, first of all. Um, but I mean, I have to, to tell people there is no more opportunities or there is no opportunities in working with wood in Burkina Faso since we are in the middle of the Sahel uh, zone. you know, the Sahel zone is... It is dry. That is no good. And then as a 17, 18 years uh, boy, if you got a scholarship to come to Germany and then to do a vocational um, a training, your dreams grow, you know, because you think that you will have something in, the, in your hand that enable you to push your profession further. So it, that is why I arrived in Germany. And after this training, I decided to, I told myself, I know how to make furniture I know how to fix roofs. I want to learn how to to draw and make brick layering. So I will go back to Burkina and then try to work. But it, 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 it ends differently because I'm, I am now connected to Burkina, but at the same time, I am doing projects around the world. What was that initial uh, return to Burkina Faso like? First of all, you know, after this training, uh, I went further trying to become let's say a good bricklayer to know how I can do it but then there was no ways and I was suggested to do a high school degree and to be able to study in Germany okay I said if there is no other way to learn how to make a proper wall then I will do that and I did it for five years and I potentially I earned my high school degree and I went to a university in Germany to study architecture. And uh, I didn't wait to finish studying. I learned techniques at university, and this is what I wanted to do. I knew how to do basic calculation, basic engineering. And also, I discovered a lot of ancient techniques around Berlin. So with this, I feel I was good enough to go back to Burkina and start to work. And so I went back, still being a student at the TU Berlin, And to start construct a a school for my people in my uh, hometown, I really didn't want to wait to really finish studying. But I wanted to be active, to use my skills and create something that will serve
0: my community. So it was always about, yeah, almost as soon as you had the skills starting to implement them.
10: Yes, exactly. This is what I, I, di- I, I did. I mean, I, I
0: want to ask, too, you talked about learning ancient techniques there in uh, when you were in Germany. Uh, it, it feels to me like you use a lot of uh, maybe traditional techniques, local materials, even local skills in, in your work. Is that something that's deliberate or or why has that happened? Why is that across the body of your work?
10: It's very simple. You know, it's about really knowing your reality and then being connected to the world of technology uh, of innovation, that is Burkina Faso in the other, in the one hand, and the other one is Germany or the Western, the West, you know. And so uh, for me, if you really go with high, t- high technique, high technology, you cannot succeed where technology is at the very, very beginning. So how our, I connect both is to study the way people built in Germany before the industrial time. I wanted to simply know how there was mixing material to build before the industrial time and then to take these techniques and apply them together with knowledge in Burkina Faso to create a building, for example, that can sustain the element, that can last longer, that also didn't put a lot of burden to the environment. This was ideas That's why I'm always interested to simple techniques, simple solutions first. This paved my career from the beginning to now.
0: At the same time, it almost feels like there's a sustainability angle in there. Like by returning to maybe these more traditional ways of building where you're able to create structures that are actually going to last longer.
10: You know, we're using this word like, that is an expression, a white elephant. So a white elephant is to go in a place and just install something, a building or whatever, and people are not able to fix, you know, to install something that has nothing to deal with reality. In my case, I wanted to create something that people understand, that people can learn from it, that people later can maintain it, that people can identify themselves with with the structure, but also to create something comfortable enough without having the need to put energy, for example, to cool inside the rooms, you know. And so now it is part of my DNA, but you can call it sustainability. But for me, there was no other solution than to look at material that are abundant, to use them, to improve them, and then to create something that really fit within the reality to my people and not to create a white elephant.
0: And a highlight from my show, The Stack, which is always fascinating. Every week there's new titles around, and this one is particularly beautiful. It's called Linseed Journal. It was edited by Louise Long. She stopped by here at the studio.
7: Linseed is an incredible natural material. It's also known as flax, and it's one of the world's most versatile, resilient crops. It's obviously a foodstuff for humans, but it's a fodder for animals, and it goes into all sorts of different forms of art and craft and objects of everyday life from carpentry oil for carpentry and oil painting obviously linen which is kind of one of the most ancient textiles in history so it really inspired the whole concept for the publication which is about these intertwinings between the land and human culture so it seemed like an apt title
0: and Although it feels very poetic, it's very beautiful, gentle at times, there's also an encyclopedic side to it. I, I don't know, for some reason I thought when I was a kid reading those books as well, and that's, that's so beautiful as well.
7: Yeah, oh, I love that you picked up on that because that was really something that I wanted to be part of it from the beginning. I've always loved maps and encyclopedias mm. and as you might have discovered, we have four chapters throughout the publication and the third chapter is much more encyclopedia-like. It's um, sort of more functional with notes and recipes and we sort of wanted to be able to have a space for different types of content and different forms of information and different reading experiences and create different moods and worlds within one space and explore the possibilities of print in that way.
0: And what do you mean that, for example, this first issue says on the cover here that is the Apple Volume 1. So for each volume, are you thinking to choose an element or a food or, or something, and then you kind of base the issue around that element?
7: Yes, exactly. So very much... Like the linseed, we're taking an organic material as our theme for each print edition. So volume one is the apple, um, which is kind of one of the you know most original, timeless cultural objects. But it's a theme that's very much interpreted in a sort of symbolic, metaphorical mm. way, much more abstract than you might expect. And it really sort of allows us to look at the world through this lens, but bringing in all sorts of different content and types of ways of working so that's personal essays but also writing poetry and lots of specially commissioned artwork from around the world and also weaving together historical and archival imagery which was really sort of part of the concept from the beginning in terms of stitching together geographic boundaries but also through place and time so not trying to draw too harsh distinction between the past, what's part of history and the present and trying to create these resonances between cultures and historical periods.
0: I mean, and it is quite international because the magazine takes you to all sorts of places, you know, takes you to Mexico, to Kenya, among others, I mean, takes us to the UK. That's, that was quite nice as well, the way you did even if, if it ends here, the haiku of New York.
7: <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, I love travelling and I love experiencing new places, but the idea was really to bring together contributors from all over the world who are uniquely placed to speak about or respond to a particular environment or a particular place. So in New York, obviously, I needed to have New York in there being the Apple theme. Um, But it's not, it's not hopefully sort of too obvious (laughs) an inclusion. And yeah, it was really a joy to be able to work with so many different contributors and also, you know, go out and find people who are particularly placed to speak about where they came from and commission both new talent and and find people that were sort of more emerging writers or artists
0: it's such a confident loan show i want to know like have you worked in any magazines before In in each way because i mean this is clearly your project this is your thing but uh, how, how was it before i want to know because it's such a beautiful product i want to know where you came from in a way
7: <laughs> oh thank you that's very kind well, I've worked for a number of years as a freelancer, as a photographer and a writer, working with lots of different publications and I've always loved print. It's always been something that I've sort of admired from afar and had thought for a while about doing something myself. And really it sort of came together I guess as a combination of things that I've been thinking about for a long, long time and ideas that I've been gathering. But Um, It also quickly became something that was about a spirit of collaboration. And I started working with Emily, my designer, and also Phoebe, who was supported on the editorial side. And once we'd opened up for submissions, I was really flattered by the quality of responses. And yeah, it became as much about sort of bringing together other people's ideas and for it to be a space for those different sorts of responses to kind of breathe and find these unconscious connections because it's really about trying to weave together ideas that you might not otherwise see placed side by side.
0: Finally, here on The Curator, Gitanjali Krishna investigates how India's pink city got its name and what effect the rose hue has on residents today.
5: Summers always meant long visits to Jaipur when I was little. My grandparents lived there, and our holidays were dedicated to them, even though it meant braving the heat and dust of the Rajasthani desert summer. We'd catch the Pink City Express in the wee hours of the morning from the ramshackle Old Delhi railway station. And the minute we settled down on our seats, I'd ask, Why is Jaipur called the Pink City when it isn't pink at all? My mother, a Jaipur native, would tell us the story of the Maharaja who wanted to please a king. The story goes that in 1876, the Prince of Wales, who later became King Edward VII, declared that he would visit Jaipur. The reigning Maharaja of Jaipur at that time was Ram Singh and he wanted to construct a magnificent monument in the royal visitor's honour. But there was no time, so instead he ordered the laying of the foundation stone of a lavish concert hall, now the Albert Hall Museum, during his visit. And he had the entire walled city painted pink, a colour that's traditionally associated with Rajasthani hospitality. He called it pink, but actually it's more a shade of terracotta. While we were in Jaipur, we would go with our grandmother to buy spices in the Gheewalon ka Rasta, literally the street of ghee sellers, in the old city. It was a fascinating place with many such crowded lanes, which were filled with shops and havelis, traditional houses built around deep, shady courtyards. Their terracotta-painted walls were offset with white frescoes and would shimmer gently in Jaipur's summer heat. Later, as a teenager, I spent lots of time in the bustling textile market around Hawa Mahal, the Palace of Winds. Here, tailors would magically transform swathes of pretty block-printed chintzes bought next door into skirts and kurta within the hour. Their ancient sewing machines and prehistoric cutting scissors seemed like relics which were better displayed at the Albert Hall, but their tailoring was certainly on trend. As their sewing machines burred, they often told me that many locals chafed against the municipal rules that forbade them to paint their facades any other colour. But they said it didn't matter if they liked it or not, as long as the tourists did. Much has changed today. My grandparents and those lazy summers in Jaipur are distant memories. The tailors have disappeared too, and a shiny new metro station now stands in their old spots. Jaipur's pink has endured though. Municipal rules still prohibit the use of any other colour in the old city. Jaipur has now become one of India's most Instagrammed places, thanks, at least in part, to its rosy hues. A recent study by Pantone Colour Institute has identified Rose Dawn, a dusky shade of pink, as one of the four colours that get the maximum engagement from Instagram users. On a recent visit to Jaipur, I decided to go to the top of Hawa Mahal. As I gazed at the old city through its windows, I realised that this is the shade that best describes Jaipur. Beneath me, the city lay bathed in burnt sienna through the prism of the setting sun. I could see pink everywhere, from the fabrics dip dyed and fluttering in the breeze over the shops in the old city, to the new boutiques selling trendy rose quartz jewelry and the serene block prints of Sanganer. A wedding procession went by, full of pink turbaned guests. Till date, pink remains the preferred color of all wedding turbans in Rajasthan. I realized that the rosy hospitality once extended by a Maharaja to a prince who became the emperor has outlived them both. And so it has come to pass that today, in Jaipur, pink is no longer just a colour, it is a state of mind.
0: That's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week, and thank you for listening.